0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner, titled When the Bow Breaks, Grief, Community, and Rough Initiations. This conversation was recorded from a Zoom webinar. The audio quality is somewhat compromised.
1: Good morning. There's Julie Portelli welcoming us all. Welcome, Julie, from the Healing Circles community. And, um, you know, I almost feel Francis, like starting this, um, uh, with good morning, Vietnam, you know, <laughs> it's almost like that experience of that, uh, great film, uh, where Robin Williams starts, uh, he's, he's broadcasting into the complete chaos of, of Vietnam and uh, this extraordinary film and he says good morning vietnam and uh, So here we are. It's more like good morning world um, Good morning world the complete chaos of the world that we're living in And there's smith center uh, checking in with us uh, From the east coast all our friends at smith center for healing and the arts in washington. D.C uh, Hello from petaluma from emily betts and Marilyn Montgomery is checking in with us. Um, so we have uh, Francis Weller here with us today. He will be our speaker and two beloved friends, Lady Bird Morgan, who's a senior staff member at Commonweal. There's Diana Lindsey from Healing Circles Langley and Healing Circles Global. We are getting ready to start here. Francis, I will introduce you. Um, Francis Weller is uh, a very gifted friend and colleague. Um, We have co-led the Cancer Health Program for how many years now Francis together?
2: I think eight, eight years.
1: Eight years. We sit together on the couch at Pacific House at Commonwealth with eight participants uh, from across the country and around the world. And um, We do an evening on death and dying where we talk about grief. And grief is uh, deeply central to um, Francis's work. He's a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He is a master of synthesizing diverse streams of thought from psychology, anthropology, mythology, alchemy, indigenous cultures, and poetic traditions. And those aren't just words I know from experience that francis is a master of synthesizing these diverse streams he's the author of the wild edge of sorrow rituals of renewal and the sacred work of grief he was kind enough to ask me to write the introduction to that which i was honored to do and it's become one of the uh, deepest texts on grief that is uh, available to us today and i commend it to everyone he's also the author of the threshold between loss and revelation with Rashani Raya, is that how you pronounce the name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he's introduced healing work of ritual to thousands of people. He founds and directs Wisdom Bridge, an organization that offers educational programs that seek to integrate the wisdom from indigenous cultures with the insights and knowledge gathered from the Western poetic, psychological, and spiritual traditions. And so uh, I'm going to do something that I haven't done, I don't think, on a new school talk to before. But you know, this uh, conversation is called When the Bow Breaks, right? Correct. And that's from uh, Rockabye Baby, right? And it goes like this. If anybody wants to join in, please do. <laughs> rock a baby in the treetop when the wind blows the cradle will rock when the bow breaks the cradle will fall and down will come baby cradle and all i got through that okay
2: nicely done michael
1: so a question for you, Francis, um, do you know the origin of that uh, lullaby and how extraordinary it is because how many millions of people sing it to children and there it is, the tragedy of life wrapped right into the soothing song that is sung by people all over the world. I, I didn't have time to look into its origin, but I wondered if you knew anything about
2: it. I don't. I, I'm. Having some vague memory that it's associated with sometimes a plague, but I might be wrong. Uh uh-huh. huh. Uh um, huh.
1: So you also, Francis, are just completing an ebook, um, which is really amazing. Uh, it's, you're going to put it out this week. It's called "In the Absence of the Ordinary: Essays in a Time of Uncertainty," uh, with um, really just uh, an amazingly contemporaneous uh, set of questions. The first section is called When the Bout Breaks, and then the second is The Care of the Soul, and uh, the third is Meanwhile the World Goes On. So clearly the questions that we're facing today draw not only on your deep work and grief, but in your set of uh, essays on this question. So with that, I, I'd like to ask you where you'd like to begin? Where would you like to take us?
2: Well, I think the part of the title of this conversation is about rough initiations, and that might be a useful place to step off, just like when we do the cancer program, we often give a context to the cancer process as a rough initiation. It's not something we ever ask for, but it's something that visits us nonetheless, and whether it's cancer, whether it's a pandemic, um, we are thrown into a time of upheaval and radical change. And I call true initiations, several things happen. One of them is that there is a, a severance from the world that you once knew. There's a radical alteration in one's sense of identity. And there's a profound sense that you can never return to the world that was. And in true initiations that's, you're not supposed to return to the world that was. Uh, We hope that this crisis that we're facing right now initiates some type of radical alterations in how we conduct our lives, how we interact with the economy, how we interact with the watersheds, how we are as neighbors. I mean, everything that we took for granted right now has been shaken to its foundation. And if we can utilize that as a process of ripening, of maturing, um, this could be a real threshold moment for us as a, as, a, as a species.
1: This is so true, Francis. And you know, I've I've followed that theme for a long time in my explorations of healing ourselves and healing the earth, which is the core mission of Commonweal. And what I've long said, which just to rephrase what you said is that the central th- idea that the wound is not only a wound, but an opening and that it is, as Blake said it, somebody Dame Edith said, Sitwell said about William Blake, she said he was cracked, but it was through the cracks that the light came. And so we do have at moments like this, this opportunity for awakening at a personal level. There's no question about that, that the data is very good. But it's also well known that whole civilizations shift, country shift at times uh, after wars or after plagues or, or things like that. What we don't know, what we never know, is whether that shift is from our values point of view for the better or for the worse. It can go either way or it can go a whole set of ways together.
2: Well, we're seeing that right now that Initiation doesn't guarantee a radical change. It can craw- can also create a contraction, a regression into adolescent strategies, self-survival, greed, um, narcissism. There's ways in which that threshold does not necessarily mean breakthrough. It can also mean breakdown. So that's part of our staying connected to one another and hopefully utilizing some of the values of soul as a way of seeing this as an invitational process, not a not one that we simply want to endure. You, you know, you don't want to just get through this situation. We want to be able to oh, um, allow it to marinate us in some way that we, again, become sweeter and riper as human beings.
1: Now, in your new book of essays, um You have a beautiful line where you talk about a different way of holding social distancing.
2: Yeah. That term is very cold and uh, can lead us to feeling isolated rather than distanced. And if we could reimagine it as a time of sanctuary and solitude, uh, almost in a, you know, I, I hesitate to use the term, but almost in a monastic quality of changing isolation into one of solitude. There's a wonderful line of Rilke's where he said, I am too alone in the world, but not alone enough to make every minute holy. Now that's a beautiful switch from feeling cut off and isolated to seeing the invitation as one of contemplation or or a deepening of an intimacy with one's own soul. That's I, I, I talked to some of my patients who are extroverts and this idea of being um, in social distancing is very uncomfortable for them. But for us introverts, it's actually quite a, quite a lovely a break from the mania of, of uh, Western culture. So I'm actually cherishing this time and a lot of people I know are, but it's not because we want to be there, but we can use this time, I think. Meaningfully and creatively.
1: I am too alone in the world, but not alone enough to make every moment holy. Right. Isn't that beautiful?
2: That's an extremely uh, rich invitation, right there. That if we could t- change it, I mean, we, we all know about isolation, we all know about loneliness, but what Rilke does is this pivot in which he sees that the invitation is towards a profound friendship, a profound intimacy with one's own soul or with the sacred. Mm. Uh, both of those invitations are there if we use it. You
1: know. Ladybird, um, this line, I am too alone in the world, but not alone enough to make every moment holy. As you sit with this period of time, um, in your wisdom, what are you uh, reflecting on as we begin this conversation?
3: Um, thank you for asking. It's such a, a beautiful line. The first thing that comes to my mind in listening to you, Francis, and um, hearing the possibilities of marinating and and being with space and allowing something to actually become. Giving something time to become sacred. I remember you're um, sharing how you taught, one of your teachers taught you about the pace of geological time. And one of the experiences I've had during this virus outbreak and the isolation is that um, there was this very fast jump to um, media and communicating, and that we took all of our, our, current stories and bags with us into that new paradigm and um i didn't feel the space for marination i felt that i was catapulted into a place beyond grief to um being beyond the grief and i'm so grateful for the healing circles model where you can actually sit in a circle and allow grief to be in the space without actually doing anything to allow that place of newness um, so that's that that comment of being alone, but not enough to make it sacred actually feels exactly like what's happening right now. Um, I don't always have enough time in the day to really feel what it feels like to find that sacredness. Um, that answers your question.
1: Lady Bird, you direct uh, your uh, wonderful new senior staff person at Commonweal. And I just want to introduce you a little more to those who don't know you yet. You direct the Healthy Prisons Hospice Project. Humane Prison Hospice Project. Humane Prisons Hospice Project, thank you. Uh, What's happening in the prisons right now? Uh, A
3: lot of chaos. Um, The the men are being asked to do their own cleaning of areas with a bucket of bleach water and a rag. At one prison uh, here in California, all of the prisoners over 60 were taken from their cells and moved into the sick ward, which um, actually made them much more vulnerable. Um, Not very many have been released. Not very many staff members are wearing masks. Um, It's pretty chaotic and scary and overwhelming and they don't have access to Zoom meetings or calls. They have one pay phone sometimes in an area that all of them have to use that is not being cleaned to try to reach out and connect with the family. So there's actually a lot of movement to mobilize change mm. with the governor and across the nation actually right now for prison reform mm. on a very big level. And having a hospice in there would be incredibly helpful. Um, mm. So we're, we're moving in many different areas to mobilize awareness.
1: Thank you for that. I want to ask Diana Lindsay of uh, Healing Circles Langley, a flagship center for us for Healing Circles work. Um, as you listen to Francis, Diana, what comes
4: up for you? I think Francis is a des- is describing a dance that we're all in and that I hear from everybody in healing circles that there is this there can be a, a deep gratitude for this time uh, this time for more inner knowledge inner wisdom and at the same time as ladybird describes a a desire for connection that we are feeling I think in innovative ways, each of us individually. For example, my family who has just lost Kelly, my husband, we now remotely set aside a common time to meditate together. From all over across the country, we sit down for 20 minutes and we basically just express our love for one another Our grief at the world. And we have learned as a family to feel at a level that we've never felt before a communication um, through subtle energies that is not at all part of our very extroverted family pattern. So I think this growing awareness is part of the initiation that Francis is talking about that's now perhaps possible for us. Um, But I think this remains a time to keep connection, because through this connection, we are learning a lot about ourselves as well.
1: Mm. Thank you, Diana. Francis, coming back to you now, I just wanted to introduce our two beloved friends who you know. Um, Yes. an experience I'm having, and I know I know others are having, but I'll speak for myself, there's this unbelievably impossible uh, contrast between the space that opens up for those of us who have food in the refrigerator and money in the bank and homes to be in and the capacity to walk outdoors uh, and things like that and this unbelievable suffering that is taking place around the world and so for progressives or people with progressive values or even just sentient uh, people of compassion that's just a um, it's almost impossible to know how to hold those two things at the same time. So my question to you is how do you hold those two things at the same time?
2: Oh, like a broken cup.
1: You
2: mm-hmm. know. I, I catch some of it. A lot of it falls through. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a a way we could understand that what we're asked to face right now is more than the psyche can handle. And so I want to say, you know, a a word of praise and honoring of numbness and dissociation. And uh, we're being asked very singularly to embrace something that's bigger than the psyche can really tolerate or even digest or even understand. Um, but we are all now swimming in this field. We're in a field of grief. We're in a fear, a field of panic and terror, uncertainty, unpredictability. One of the possible breakthroughs here, even for you know progressives or whatever, we still think very individually. That's the conditioned mind of this culture. Uh, what I'm beginning to sense or hope for is that we're beginning to sense. This is our suffering. This is our grief. It isn't my private grief anymore. We've maybe crossed into a threshold where we're beginning to understand how entangled we are in one another's lives. That it's not just my survival anymore, but ours. And the stakes have risen. And then that that is part of this initiation. It's initiating beyond the sense of my own myopia, my own self centered reality to breaking that open to a multiplicity of relationships that i can, i'm not well unless you are you know the what well, they do of, of ubuntu from south africa of my well-being is entirely entangled in your well-being so my staying home is actually an act of village mindedness i'm taking care of the village by staying home you know uh, I have no idea if I'm
1: answering your question or not, Michael. But no, you are. I mean, you are in as much as the question can be answered.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, there's so many different frames that uh, the, the Internet is alive with millions of different frames that people are holding this with. So you find the frame of uh, nature is breathing a great sigh of relief. And, uh, you know, how wonderful that the animals are returning and that, you know, the skies are quiet and the planes aren't flying. And, you know, how wonderful that um, the carbon going, the, you know, the carbon going into the atmosphere is reducing and production is reducing this sort of, the celebration that this is a move toward a more ecological civilization, right? There's that, that's one frame. Uh, Another frame obviously is, um, is, you know, this is a disaster beyond words. We just have to rush and repair it and just get back to, uh, to so-called normal. Uh, then the third frame is we will never return to n- a normal. It will be a new normal. And the fourth frame is, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, preparing us, uh, you know, tracking everybody and all this other stuff is, Preparing people around the world for authoritarian government, and you know, so there are all these. And then others say this is the beginning of bringing humanity together in an ecological civilization. So there are all these different frames, right? And none of us know uh, what 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 the what the result will be.
2: No, I think the only thing we know is that we're at that threshold. Exactly, and we each have to, I remember giving a talk up in Victoria one time and uh, a young woman asked the question, so what's the answer to this crisis that we're facing? I think I was mentioning the climate crisis. And I said, well, there is no answer, but there is a response. And each one of us has to decipher the response that we're capable of making and then make it. Collectively, our our conjoined efforts are meaningful. Uh, Singularly, it may not amount to much at all, but Mm
1: -hmm.
2: we see what happens when we we gather our minds collectively together. Mm -hmm. We can affect things on a a very major scale.
1: Lady Bird, what is your personal response to this situation? As Francis says, there is no answer, but we each have our response. How do you find yourself responding to it?
3: Uh, it's, it's different every day. Um, but I think the, the main new thing that I've noticed and I'm trying to attend to is um, trying to feel where all of this is um, landing in my body. Um, so much of our conversation comes from our our mind and our thoughts and our processing. And I'm taken by Francis, that, that movement from me to we, I feel like a lot of times that's very intellectualized. And then to actually feel that uh, the work in the prisons has opened that door because can, I, can the we include people I don't agree with? Can the we include people that eat foods I don't like they should be eating all of that you know there's a there's a way that there's a integration in the cells so i'm responding by um by actually slowing down i'm i'm moving slower i'm crying more i'm i'm trying to listen to something that is much deeper than the the immediate cries um, so that I can respond in a way that feels sustaining to my well-being and also to anybody that I interact mm-hmm.
1: with. Thank you, Lady Francis, Francis, uh, I want to go back to your Wild Age of Sorrow book because you speak of the different gates of grief. And somehow to me to just uh, give people a, a, a kind of a brief sense of what those gates are seems very grounding for this conversation.
2: I'd be happy to. The, um, and I've also been thinking about where does this collective grief go into? And I don't know if it fits into any of the five gates. They, we may mm. have, to have a sixth gate of collective mm-hmm. sorrow. Uh, the first gate is that everything we love, we will lose. That uh, and right now we're you know, witnessing a lot of deaths in this culture and around the world from this pandemic. and the reality sinks in pretty quickly that nothing is permanent. We get to hold on to nothing. Everything is moving through our hands and that's why it becomes so precious. The second gate is uh, has to do with the grief we carry for the parts of us that have not known love. So we were raised in families and religious systems, educational systems that told us that certain parts of our being were not welcome, we're not adequate, we're not okay. So we had to discard portions of our being, our enthusiasm, our sensuality, our our grief, our anger. Uh, And so every part that we disown becomes a place of loss, but we learn to hold these parts of us with judgment. So it's hard to grieve what we hold with contempt. And that's part of the work of therapy and part of the work of any kind of uh, healing process is is amending those relationships to the outcast parts of us. The third gate has to do with the sorrows of the world. And maybe that's partly where this crisis nests itself is in the sorrows of the world. Uh, Every day we hear of, news from the front line of um, glacier depletion, uh, species depletion. Um, I just read a piece yesterday about, uh, we might be the last generation to see the coral reefs in Australia. I mean, these are in our bodies all the time, but we rarely, rarely acknowledge that grief, but it's there all the time because we are intricately embedded in uh, in the atmosphere and in the watersheds. The fourth gate is um, what we expected and did not receive. That our evolutionary story wired us to arrive here expecting a certain quality of welcome, a certain quality of participation and engagement with the wild world, with the green world, with ritual worlds, and almost none of that took place. And so there's this aching sense of emptiness inside of us that we attribute to some flaw in our character, but which is actually a failure of culture to offer and provide what it is that we expected and we're wired to um, engage with.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner.
2: And then the fifth gate is ancestral grief, which... As I said, with this gate becomes more and more complex and more and more uh, comprehensive. I think most of the grief that we carry did not begin in our lifetime. That we are the inheritors; we are the current curators of the sorrows of generations past. And so we are trying to digest and metabolize probably you know three to five to a thousand year old griefs in our bodies that have been passed down. And now they're talking about the transgenerational transmission of trauma. They're, they're seeing actual proof of this. So, yes, we are the carriers of that grief, and it's up to us to turn and face it, which is brings me to something I'd like to talk about at some point today, which is the apprenticeship with sorrow. Which is what? The apprenticeship with sorrow.
1: I'd love to turn to that next in a moment, but I'd just like to ask you, why doesn't the grief now rest in the third and fifth of, of your gates? In other words, you said well, maybe it, it,
2: it, yeah, it could be.
1: Yeah. Um, but why would you want to add a sixth gate? First of all, six is not a good number. It's either got to be five or seven. <laughs> you know that, Francis.
2: Oh, I you know. can't have but
1: six gates, so you've got to have either five or seven. It's got to be This is true. This yeah. is true. Maybe five uh five
2: point one or something. Like that. <laughs> uh. Well, I don't know yet. I'm still sitting with what what is the quality of this grief? Yeah. Uh, Because this is a grief that's also tinged with a lot of panic and terror. Uh, I don't know. I'm still sitting with that question. But it may may find itself really resting well within that third Mm and fifth Yeah.
1: So let's move forward to what you wanted to talk about next.
2: Well, I think part of when I began working with grief, you know a couple decades ago, you begin to see in the people who come to the to the weekends um, and in my own working with people in my practice, that grief is not a you know a one-time event. It is a chronic presence in our life. And if you pay attention at all, those five gates are shimmering pretty much every single day in our life. Uh, driving to work, I'll, I'll see the you know the dead by the side of the road, all of the carnage from the nighttime a roadkill, or I'll drive into town and see the homeless encampments. Uh, uh, there's no escape from sorrow, as Buddha would say, right? It's it's probably, you know it's built into our experience. What we don't do is, as a culture, is educate our people on how to uh, navigate the sorrows of the world. That's why this idea of apprenticeship is so meaningful for me. And the old idea, apprenticeship was something that you undertook sometimes for 10 to 20 years with a craft, whether it's painting or weaving or carpentry. And at the end of that long apprenticeship, you were considered a master craftsperson. And the apprenticeship was with sorrow, that same length of time is required. We are are asked to carry this for decades, I think our entire lifetime. The outcome is not mastery. The outcome of someone who carries a certain fidelity to that apprenticeship is elderhood. And that's a remarkable absence in the culture, is kind of a a robust presence of elders. Even right now, we're seeing how few of the elders are showing up in the midst of a crisis. Um, But that's what that apprenticeship is about. It is learning to keep our face turned into the intense wave of sorrow that come day after day and not turn away, to not practice our cultural um, sins of amnesia and anesthesia, but to stay engaged and let the grief ripen us. Grief has a profound alchemical capacity to turn our encounters into medicine. Um, and that's what you see. I mean, I see it all the time in the Cancer Help Program is those people who have really dropped deeply into their journey of healing, come out of it changed and returning with medicine. And that's the beauty of any crisis situation. If we can engage it, and stay faithful to it, and not just endure it, but to work with it, we come out changed. And that's what an apprenticeship does, it changes us. See, grief is not just an emotion, but it's also a core human faculty. And this apprenticeship helps us to deepen that faculty because we are going to be asked over and over again, the pandemic is the first horseman, it's the first wave that has caught our collective attention but right behind it is the climate catastrophe, the economic catastrophe. We are being you know quickened to be able to respond meaningfully to these waves that are going to be coming wave after wave after wave. We better have something underneath our feet and otherwise we'll be washed away.
1: Well that's beautiful <laughs> Francis and as you know <clears throat> I'm deeply engaged in the study of all these waves. Um, if uh, many of you who know Commonweal know our uh, resilienceproject.ngo, where our fundamental purpose is to look at the waves altogether. Uh, uh, as you know, up until uh, the virus showed up, uh, the world thought that the two key issues were climate change and poverty, basically. Uh, and but if you uh, Really Look deeply at what's happening. There are about two dozen different global stressors social environmental technological that are interacting in completely unpredictable ways And the and uh, the result is is that there'll be one thing after another So just imagine in the short term over the summer and the fall, right? we will have uh the virus we will have climate change uh we will have the forest fires the floods the hurricanes and all that and we will have the run-up to the election in the united states but also elsewhere in the world with similar situations uh, with many forces seeking to disrupt it and uh, change american democracy and so um, so all these things together uh, call on us, uh, as you said, to serve this apprenticeship with grief, because how else can we hold it in a healthy way? How else can we hold it? But one thing I do want to say, and this will take some people out of their comfort zone, you and I are both some, sometimes students of, an archetypal psychology called the Enneagram. And uh, those who don't know it, you can go to enneagraminstitute.com or one of many sites. You can also look up on the New School website, my conversations with Beatrice Chestnut and her extraordinary book, The Complete Enneagram. But for those of you who don't know it, it, there are nine points around the Enneagram circle that represent nine character types and three subtypes for each one and briefly they are the perfectionist the helper the achiever the individualist the observer the loyalist the enthusiast the iconoclast and the the peacemaker Um, so you and i talk about it and it's part of our culture at commonweal to be able to think that way but you happen to be an enneagram four which you've shared with me and of course the enneagram four which is the uh, the individualist is probably the point in the enneagram most acquainted with sorrow in in the deep sense. So you, you have this perfect ability in Enneagram archetypal terms to explore sorrow in depth. But you and I both know that grief and sorrow is only one possible response to this period of time. And if you look at the other points around the Enneagram, not everybody is focused on grief. You know, there's a lot of sort of light conversation well, not light but simplistic conversation that says you know how do we all hold our grief our climate grief whatever it is but if you actually talk to people not everybody is holding climate grief or you know and there are other places on the enneagram where people are just holding it very differently. So I think the reason I bring this up and I'm truly interested in in your response is it's impossible to generalize that uh grief is the preeminent issue for all personality types, whether you talk about uh, it in terms of Enneagram or some other terms. I mean, the Enneagram tracks very closely with the Diagnostic Psychiatric Manual and other character structure types. And I could go back into the history of it in Greece and, and um, Jerusalem and so on, but it's a very ancient way of thinking about human character. So given how different these different characters, how differently they hold these things, uh, how do you hold that in relationship with your view that we all have this apprenticeship with grief because it will be held differently by different people?
2: Well, would you say that everyone will know suffering?
1: I would say that everyone... So for example, if it's an Enneagram eight, uh, which is the iconoclast, they're very often not necessarily connected with their grief, they're connected with anger, you know, uh, as a response. Uh, The Enneagram three, the achiever, they're trying to figure out how to, you know, I mean, you know, they may well know grief, I won't go into the people who I know are threes who know grief deeply, but, uh, but they don't necessarily go to grief. If it if it hasn't touched them closely, they don't. Uh, two is definitely, the helper definitely goes to grief easily. But the point is it's distributed in different character structures sure, in sure. very different ways. And so what I am cautious about is the assumption that everyone needs to serve an apprenticeship with grief as the condition for achieving elderhood. And I honestly don't know the, I mean, this is why these things are not scripted. It's a real conversation with you.
2: Well, I think there is a universality to certain things. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
2: We will all know a loss. We will all know suffering. How we digest that or make meaning out of that might really depend upon our temperaments and character. That's true. The apprenticeship, why I say it's valuable or maybe necessary as part of our movement towards elderhood, has to do with what are the ways in which the heart stays responsive to the world. And for me, and maybe my own narrow vision of it, that grief has this potential as a solvent. It can soften the hardest places in it if we remain faithful to the sorrow that comes through those gates or through this current crisis, our hearts will have the capacity to remain open to the to the world. And if we don't register that, then the changes are gonna be much harder to make in the culture. So grief has a capacity, I do feel, and I've seen thousands of times to break us open uh, I don't know much more about how to say that in terms of the variations on how people will make meaning out of their grief or their sorrows or how they'll approach it. I'm not as uh, as aware of the, of the different styles in the, on the Enneagram. As a four
1: I only study a four and <laughs> So well, we have a we have a wonderful by the way, the chat thing is such a beautiful thing here Yale Weisberg says this feels like a simplification. I'm an eight and I go deep into grief. It's my calling I feel called to approach it and go into it and lead others through it right um, and that so I accept that it's uh, uh uh, and then Sir Richard Page writes, as Beatrice Chestnut's mentor, the great Claudio, Claudio Naranjo, told us, the Enneagram alone will not take us home. No truer words can be said. But mm-hmm. I love the chat function and it, because it really brings uh, everybody into uh, this conversation in a really lovely way. And let me remind people that questions go to Q&A and... Um, uh, uh, Yale again said, "Can Francis share the three steps of rough initiation again?
2: Sure. The first thing that happens in any true initiation or any rough initiation like trauma is that there's a severing from the world that you once knew. You leave what was familiar. It's over. When the cancer diagnosis is made, when the, you know when this pandemic hit, we left some. Uh, assumed world. The second part of that is that there's a radical alteration in one's sense of identity. Who I was prior to the crisis is not who I am now. You know, Michael, you and I have heard many times in the Cancer Health Program, people will say, I don't know who I am anymore. Any true initiation is a dissolution of identity. It dissolves the structure, the, the current fixed identity, that's what initiation is meant to do. Sometimes when it's done in a contained way, I call initiation, true initiation, a contained encounter with death. And I call rough initiations an uncontained encounter with death. When it's uncontained, it's much more treacherous, much more difficult. The third part that comes up out of this initiatory thing is that there's a, a profound awareness that I can never go back to the world that was. You can't go back to a pre-diagnostic world. That's one of the mistakes that Western medicine makes is we're gonna get you back to where you were before you got sick. Well, we're gonna waste a perfectly good heart attack, we'll waste a perfectly good pandemic. We don't wanna go back to the way things were. We're meant to be changed by these encounters, by the heat generated through this crucible, through this time in the vessel. We're meant to be changed by it, hopefully profoundly.
1: Thank you for that. And we have from Kalanish, and I wonder if this Janie Brown, it doesn't show me on the on the, the screen in the Q&A, but, um, uh, uh, but someone from Kalanish says, Francis, we are working with the frontline palliative care teams here in Vancouver. That's Vancouver, BC. Janie Brown is one of our beloved friends and colleagues. And we are working in the frontline palliative care teams in Vancouver. Yesterday, the nurses were talking about not being able to restore and balance when they go home at the end of the day, as they carry the overwhelming grief at working, uh, at work about not being able to care for people in their usual ways behind PPEs and their grief at home. Do you have any suggestions for the grief of our healthcare workers?
2: I think it's very important to create, hi, Janie. Hi. Oh, there you are, Janie. Very important to to somehow create small rituals, Mm -hmm. small practices that help to delineate what it is, A, that you're being asked to carry and finding small ways to set it down. You know, if we begin to accumulate too much sorrow, too much grief, the heart will shut down. We're not meant to backpack grief around. We're meant to move it. So the idea of ritual or writing or some type of practice is that we keep the material warm. It's an old alchemical idea. You have to keep the material warm. If it gets cold, it will congeal and harden. And that's what happens to a lot of us. So if we pay attention to it, if we notice it, if we work with it, if we engage it, we keep it warm and then it allows it to move. And it does not stay stuck and caught in our hearts and in our bodies and in our souls. Keep it moving so you can keep setting it down.
1: Jenny, I'd love to hear from you briefly about um, how you're holding it, how this is at Kalanish and in Vancouver.
5: Thanks, I'll jump in quickly because you've got wonderful pal- panelists. Morning, everybody. Morning, Janie. thanks Francis. <clears throat> Thanks, Francis, for that. Um, we, as Kalanish, we decided to uh, open up to support some of the frontline people, so to offer some counseling and small group work. So uh, yesterday was this, um, you know, very difficult conversation about how the palliative care teams aren't able to practice in the way they're used to because they only have their eyes to work with. They can't touch, they can't communicate. So it's it's difficult. So I appreciate the, the idea of these small rituals. Um, in answer to your question, Michael, um, I'm doing what everyone's doing, I think, trying to figure out how to hold the suffering inside myself and how I'm using, I think every practice I've ever developed in my life to stay steady. (laughs) So I think I'm turning toward the things and the people and the mentors and the beautiful talks that uplift me. And so I can uh, move toward, and as you said, you know, bear witness to what's happening you know, right here in front of us. And I think the disparate experiences really strike me, people who are in these very personal and intense retreats where they're able to close off from the world. And I think I have some envy for that um, and for the people who can't do that, obviously, they're right there. And of course, we're very connected to the healthcare Uh, teams and workers so um, and they're having a very different experience of that but I think you know somehow we need to hold all of that in and lift all of that up and say these experiences are bringing you know such depth and you know such um, intense um, practice Uh, I think we've been doing this many of us for many years trying to understand how to hold steady so I appreciate that opportunity that we're really using everything we've learned from our cancer retreats. from And the cancer community here is very um, resilient. That's what I'm discovering. They said, we know isolation. We know disconnect from friends and family. You know, they're serving in a way as elders in our community, these people who've lived it and endured great suffering already. So... That's what I'll say for now. Thank you, Janie.
1: And, you know, I want to bring in um, a couple of things from my end of this conversation. Um, There are several things I've noticed. One is the focus that everybody's put on getting enough ventilators, all right? Yes, it's a huge issue. What people don't talk about is that the data on how many people get off the ventilators in a decent way is very varied. National Public Radio did a piece. If you go to my blog site, which is angleofvision.org, uh, you find um, that I quoted the National Public Radio thing with a bunch of doctors saying they were very concerned about you know, the hospitals were filling with these people, they put them on the ventilators, they can't get them off the ventilators. Or there was a piece in the Washington Post this morning, a ventilator saved my life, but my life will never be the same again, you know. So here we are, not only, as you said, Janie, that the practitioners are in space suits, but the patients at potential end of life are being put on these ventilators. And do you want to die that way? It's a real question. It's an active question for me. It's an active question for other people. And so from my point of view, there are several things that are truly missing from this. The first thing that's missing is that we all are bought into the American version, the best of version conversion, Dr. Fauci and all the others, about how we should handle this. But in fact, there's a huge experiment going on all over the world of different countries holding this in different ways. Because if you think of the pandemics in like nature terms, what happens when a pandemic comes through in nature? It takes the elderly, it takes the sick, so on and so forth, but it it leaves the, the population, right? You close down the whole economy of the world and you have hundreds of millions of people facing starvation. Now, were they asked whether it was worth them starving to save elderly and sick people in developed countries and therefore close down the whole global economy? I'm not sure they were consulted. I'm not sure we know what the answer is. I'm not sure we suppress one form of suffering but we vastly increase another form of suffering. I'm not saying I know the answer to that. What I do know is that what is completely missing from the public discourse is integrative approaches to healing, not only healing circles, which are critical, but also the body, mind, spirit, you know, uh, uh, holistic medicine, integrative medicine, functional medicine. I'm gonna ask Nancy Hepp to put up on the site I think we've got about 12 uh, 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 URLs uh, on a page that we're doing on our beyond conventional cancer therapies website for 12 of the leading practitioners who have put up their recipes, Keith Block, uh, you know, uh, and others, Andy Weil, uh, you know, we've got about a dozen of them. But the point is, there's a lot that people can do to increase their resilience Uh, reduce the likelihood that the virus will take, uh, will come into them and stay. And if it does come in, reduce the severity of the illness. The other thing that's missing completely is that there are all these people who either won't get ventilators, right? And, but how are they going to die? And they're going to die because it becomes impossible to breathe. And who's focused on getting them the medicine in the right way at the right time so they can die well? Well, you know, Oregon has just uh, erased its waiting period for its compassion and dying. But is that going to get the medicines to people? You know, so here we have this situation where we all went to great lengths to get OxyContin out so that people wouldn't die of overdoses. Now people are going back to meth, by the way, as a result of that. And when people all over need access to compassionate deaths, they can't find it. So to me, it's just I just wanted to put my piece of this out there that we don't know uh, whether the ventilators are worth it as a way to die. I I honestly don't know if I get this, whether I will let them take me to the hospital and to possible ventilation. I just don't know if I want to do that. And I know I'm not alone. You know, I don't know that our version in the U.S. of what the best thing to do is compared to all the other countries. Sweden has gone a completely different way. And there are other countries, you know. So I don't I certainly do know that the integrative health promotion stuff is not being included. And I am profoundly concerned that there's not immediate compassion and dying available to lots of people. So, uh, uh, Janie, I'm going to go to you for a moment on that because that's more your wheelhouse. Any comments on that?
5: Lots to say on that, Michael. I'll try and be brief. I I agree with you that we um, we the the palliative hospice teams are now activated because we're making COVID units, but the COVID units then will be served by our palliative care teams. So I think that's where those conversations have to happen, right before this decision to go into intensive care. And what it I'm looking for statistics on how many people enter in who don't leave and how many people enter ICU. And we're getting now, getting some information about that. So I agree with you. I think our conversations, I mean, never before we had to have conversations about our mortality more than we have to now. Um, you know, Many of us have been in that field of work for a long time, but I think we're really needing to have these conversations because our families can't be in those COVID units. They can't help us have those conversations other than through technology. So I think we're working you know, quite actively to say, okay, how are these conversations going to happen before that decision? Because if you know you're progressing, there is a small window of time to decide. To decide before you very rapidly often um, deteriorate so we've got a very small window of time to have the conversations i think you're suggesting that we have so i'm hopeful that we're moving in that direction here in canada and we have you know we have uh, access to maid here and um, again that hasn't entered the conversation as you said in a way that i i'm i'm you know think it should
1: mm, thank you and Lady Bird, i just want to bring you back in as a hospice and palliative care nurse and As you listen to my little piece on this. Do you have any reflection?
3: Um, yeah, you know so many also so many thoughts come up and um, And just a a tenderness but I think having been in that in this conversation for so long um, you know not to be the devil's advocate or sound uncaring but The story about what happens with ventilators is always the case and this is not a conversation um, anyone has been comfortable having for from the beginning. And there's been a movement to have death cafes and let's talk about it while we're dancing and let's do all of these different things just to try um, to bring this to the table. But this is not a new situation with ventilators. This is not a new situation that you don't have so much time. Um, and so I there's a part of me that feels this like, okay, are we really going to move through this? Um, and transform or are we just kind of grappling at things again? And there's a concern that sometimes things get um, we focus on the drama and The the resources and the people and the supports are actually around us to have these conversations um, So maybe that window is opening But to me it doesn't feel new because of the pandemic mm. It's just there's a new pressure towards it and um, I'm very hopeful that more people will realize, oh, yeah, that I have been really uncomfortable having this conversation from the beginning. I'm not, le- I'm not uh, less comfortable now. I just can feel the squeeze, and hundreds of thousands of people feel that squeeze in the emergency department, on hospice every single day. Um, so this is what um, this is what it is. And again, it goes back to not intellectualizing it, but actually moving it through, as Francis has spoken to.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner.
1: I just feel that what does our society do in the face of this? We go for the technological fix, right? Get the ventilators. Get as many ventilators as possible. Well, I understand it. But we do have to ask, and unfortunately, we don't have good data on this because, uh, you know, the reports from different hospitals go from something like 20% uh getting off the ventilators to 70 percent something like that it widely varied but we don't Diana before I come back to Francis and resume the conversation on that uh any reflections on this this piece
4: I think this is a really important piece having just um lived through the experience of Kelly my husband dying The day he died, there were only two cases in the U.S. of community transmission. So it was a very different world. And he had had these questions around, would he be resuscitated? Would there be ventilators, feeding tubes? From the minute he was diagnosed with brain cancer, uh, the doctor sat down with him and said, "This this will not work for you and so we had had those conversations from the beginning and we had had to put them in play numerous times where we went to the er but we always had very firm limits of what would be possible there we had given thought to how did we want him what would the dying experience be and what would the burial experience be and it ended up being exquisite the living room was full with people there were four to six people touching him every moment for days. There were 10 people in a circle surrounding him. So when I see people dying alone, untouched, yeah. out without their loved ones, it breaks my heart. And I appreciate what Janie has said of the urgency that people are being thrown into and not having time to make these decisions ahead of time. Because even with all of that pre-thinking, at the end there is a there's just the rush to the end, and it's it's a very hard time to have that conversation. So I appreciate that we're we're bringing it up. Um, my son-in-law made Kelly's coffin. The whole family contributed to art that decorated it. He wants, as his personal response, to to make more, to make more caskets. And in our conversation last night, we're going, well, how can can people be buried today? Uh, You know, we had talked about green burials as an environmental boon, um, a very loving and heartfelt way to say goodbye, and yet... Do COVID patients need to be cremated? What What is that whole last piece we see in the news? The body's stacking up. Um, just what is that piece? So I think being able to have the conversations right now for all of us is an important piece.
1: Thank you, Beth. So Francis, coming back to you, um, mm. Well, first of all, just as you've listened to this little excursion into these different dimensions of, are we following the right policies, what the other countries are doing different things, what about integrative health promotion, how do we make the meds available? Uh, there's this small window if you do go into the hospital before, you know, how do you have those conversations um, just on that aspect, before we go back to your work, uh, or maybe even just bringing your work directly into this, what are your reflections?
2: We are both a heroic culture and a very extroverted culture. Mm-hmm. So our our awareness of our internal states is, is oftentimes quite minimum. And it's not part of our education. It's not part mm-hmm. of what we are uh, taught how to be in relationship to any state. I mean, the core work that we have to do in some ways is learn how to have enough capacity to separate from intense emotional experiences in order to hold the intense emotional experience. I remember one woman at the Cancer Help Program in our individual session was saying how terrified she was she was just terrified of this diagnosis. And she was young, she had just gotten married, uh, potential children and so forth. And as I'm sitting with her, I said, I asked her, can you remember a time in your life when you felt something that we might call the sacred? And she remembered, yes, she she was in an experience one time where she was able to through, through an opening in the top of a sweat lodge, see the stars up in the sky. And she said, I had this profound feeling of connection to the ancestors. And I said, well, is that self bigger than the fear? She said, absolutely. I said, well, that's how big you have to be right now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So no matter what we're encountering, the invitation or the requirement is towards immensity of becoming more and more capable. Once James Hillman once said, the issues that you face in life are not about resolution, they're about spaciousness. How big can we become? How much can we hold at any given time? And right now we're being asked to hold a lot. You know, not only my own suffering, but my neighbor's suffering, you know. A couple of the people I work with in my practice have had the COVID-19 and just sitting with them, and they can barely talk sometimes from the coughing. uh, But we we have to develop our own internal capacities to be with this. You mentioned, Michael, that um, they're not talking about uh, integrative medicine. Well, the other day, Gavin Newsom had on his Surgeon General. Uh, I didn't know California had a Surgeon General, but we do and she was talking about mindfulness she was talking about you know our emotional state she even used the word spirituality that we have to develop our own capacities on a spiritual basis to cope with what is coming into us because psychologically intellectually we're not going to be able to digest all of what's coming at us it's going to take a real again a, a deep ripening of our own emotional psychological
1: I'm grateful that our Surgeon General in California will talk about mindfulness, but it's also characteristic of where mainstream medicine is. Mindfulness has permeated now. It's become okay in mainstream medicine to practice mindfulness. But integrative medicine, functional medicine, herbal medicine, as soon as you start doing things that involve things like that, you can do yoga or qigong or imagery or you know, the psychophysiological disciplines and the uh, the psychospiritual dim- disciplines. But as soon as you get into, um, you can even do diet now, God forbid, but you cannot do supplements and herbals uh, in any meaningful way. And in fact, there's, there's reasonable evidence that number one, as Donald Abrams says, uh, the lower... The likelihood of harm the lower the burden of proof in other words if there is probable reason to believe that this stuff might help you and the downside is very small then why not but the problem is that people don't realize that some of the immune stimulating things that people are taking can cause uh, an inflammatory storm uh, in later phases of this that Make it worse, and so you have to know what you're doing. you have to know you know when to do what, when to stop, what so uh, I'm really hopeful uh, maybe we couldn't uh, get the uh, list up on here, but we'll um, I'm not sure if Nancy was able to put it up, but I'm really hopeful that people are able to uh, take a look at that uh, because uh, because I really believe that people need information on it so anyway end of that piece what i'd love to go to now francis and perhaps for the rest of the conversation uh and i want to say to people we'll get to questions as we can but uh i love the chat function because everybody can talk um but francis from your perspective for the many people who recognize that they are experiencing deep grief and perhaps not everybody does but Most of the people on this call recognize their grief. How do you suggest that we work with our grief in this period of time? What are what are the tools? What are the approaches? You've mentioned some of them, but I just wondered if you'd sort of put them together for us in a way that that people can follow.
2: Probably a most essential one is to honor it. It's a difficult guest in the house, but we have to at least be willing to turn toward it and acknowledge that what I'm feeling is grief. It can come as a heaviness, as an agitation, it can come as an anger, it can come in many different forms, but even just to be able to name that this is what I'm feeling. I think there's oftentimes. I don't know how you feel about this, Janie, but frequently when grief comes up in the people I'm sitting with, it doesn't come up all by itself. Grief comes up along with panic and terror. It's as if those two are are fused together in some way, partly because our grief rarely has ever been given a bottom in our experience. So it always feels like when we get near grief, we're in free fall. That We don't know if we're going to be able to, to, to get through it. So we tend to try to find our way around it. Uh, So the first thing is, is can I begin to, if not befriended, at least granted a place at the table, to name it. And then I can begin to engage it. Grief does not want to be tolerated. Grief asks us to engage it. So writing practice is very helpful. Um, Even doing a conversation like this, because we can't all gather together, You know, grief has always been a communal process. It's never been a private process. And now we're being told to be in our homes alone or with our our families, but we still need the community to help us process the grief. So even small, you know, four or five people on Zoom call or Skype call or whatever, let's just acknowledge that we're carrying these, these heavy, heavy states that, don't have resolution. They don't have answers. I mean, grief doesn't need to be answered. It it needs to be engaged. It needs to be honored. And um, like I said before, small rituals. Name the griefs that you're carrying into a stone and put it in a bowl. And imagine if you had four or five people all putting their grief into a, a bowl of water, you begin to get a sense again that this is not my grief but I am in a field of sorrow right now. And there's something that comes out of that that recognition of being part of something that actually helps us to feel not just grief, but also some sense of gratitude and intimacy and vulnerability. And um, I mean, grief draws us to our knees. That's just Mm -hmm. the way grief is. It's heavy, it draws us down to the ground So that would be another thing to do is stay close to the earth. Uh, uh, Make an opening in the ground and speak into the ground all that you cannot carry or or hold privately. Uh, Just try not to make it just an interior process, but make it a relational one. Grief wants company. It requires community. The other thing I would just say before I stop is a lot of people say, well, how do I deal with this? Now that I'm all alone. And so, well, that's your first fiction that you're alone. You know, we may be physically not in a house with other people, but there are the ancestors, there are the trees, there's the ground, uh, there's the whole field. I am a participant in a field that is wildly active right now. Uh, so, if I can begin to even let my imagination take that into account, that I'm not alone that I'm actually intimately entangled with everyone else's lives right now. That gives me some courage because this is a time that requ- requires courage, not uh, bravado, but courage, which you know, we all know comes from the French full heart, cour, courage. This is a time for full heartedness. And but the heart will only stay soft and open if we stay fluent in our conversations with, with the grief
1: thank you francis
2: yeah uh
1: someone is uh taking me to task rightly so for oversimplifying about eights so my apologies um not not a thoughtful or skillful uh point of view so i appreciate the the correction um so uh i'm going to try to get to some of the questions um see if I can, um, Michael's comment about ventilators make me think about the ways we cling to hope outside this rare situation of separation from the touch of our shared humanity. We would like to reach out to each other, feel physically hope. Things like ventilators while imperfect may perhaps be our way of clinging to hope and bargaining with death in a collective way. Any thoughts on that,
2: Francis? Um, hope can be a very passive thing and it can, or it can be an active thing. It all depends on who's carrying it. If there's a very young part of me holding onto the hope, it may be more like a wish. You know, I, I want to be spared the encounter. Uh, I think a, a ripened hope would be, I hope I have the courage to encounter what's in front of me. Uh, with my with my heart open and my soul engaged. Um, yeah, I don't know much more to say about that.
1: Francis, talk a little bit now about your new book, which looks completely extraordinary to me. I didn't have a chance to finish it, but what was the inspiration for it? What was the intention and how will people be able to get it next week when you uh, make it available?
2: Well, to call it a book is somewhat glamorous. It's, uh, it's um, a collection of about 13 or 14 of my essays that I've written over the years, typically in response to crisis, they're like the fires in California that we've had for the last three years. Um, and they're reflections on kind of a soulful approach to difficult times. There's a a chapter on um, uh, baptized by dark waters. There's one on um, rough initiation. So there's all these different ways in which we can try to take in the circumstances that we're facing from a soulful lens rather than a kind of a heroic ego approach, which I think lends to depth and uh, a greater sense of, of connection to the to the wider conversation that's going on rather than again me privately trying to you know overcome the circumstance so hopefully it'll be out in a week it'll probably just be on my website as a as a way for people to just download it and mm. it'll be a giveaway for right now as a as an offering to the community
1: what a beautiful offering. I, I'm so touched by it as a student of your work um, for many years. I'm just uh, very grateful that you put out this collection of essays and commend it to everyone. Thank you. Um, we have another uh, 13 minutes left. So uh, were there other topics, Francis, that you hope to touch on that I haven't asked you about, other things on your mind?
2: And when I'm doing the cancer help program towards the end of it. I think everybody online here has heard me do the 10 practices talk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm,
1: no, I can't imagine everybody's heard you do it.
2: There's, well, the ones I'm,
1: there's uh, 240 okay, so people. I'm looking all, at it our panelists, right. Yeah, but we have yeah, 242 yeah. people here who, oh, yeah. by the way, have held on uh, for this unusually long period of time as these webinars go. Uh, And judging from the chat function, by the way, somebody asked, can we capture the chat function? Yes, we will. We may do a little editing to make sure that we're comfortable with everything that's in it going up, but we will find a way to put it up in conjunction with this so people can find it. And uh, so please do your your 10 practices.
2: Well, we won't have time to get through the 10 practices, but I just wanted to name a couple of them. And I I say to them, you can do these in any order you want to. Uh, Some of them will speak to you more than others, but number one is number one, and that is Mm -hmm. self-compassion. That is a very core practice right now in our lives, uh, to practice self-compassion. We are all in unpredictable, unknown waters, and we can frequently we re- regress into coping strategies that are not very kind to us or are uh, harmful to us if you do that you know god bless you come back to self compassion we have to keep practicing kindness for others yes i remember writing in my book how grief work opens us to compassion for others but i didn't write in the book in order to have to deal with my own grief, I have to have self-compassion. I have to see my losses and my suffering as worthy of my attention. So we're in this very intense time right now. And my hope is, is that we turn towards our experience with great kindness, great gentleness, great mercy, uh, great compassion. And then I list all the other practices that are there, imagination, creativity, love, uh, ritual, silence, time, and I end with the last one is service. Mm. And I say to them, you know, at some point, maybe not right now, but at some point what you have gathered on your healing journey was not meant for you alone. At some point you'll be asked to give it away. And we are, we are in the midst of this collective whitewater experience. My guess is that we are going to gather together an enormous amount of wisdom. If that can come through, how did you get through this, Michael and Janie and Diana and Ladybird? How did you walk through this fierce time and come out still leaning into life? Well, that's a wisdom trove that I'm hoping we can really gather together and disseminate across the planet uh, as a blessing. I mean, the last thing I would say is you know, we're all vectors. We are all vectors, but we can choose what it is we spread. Spread kindness.
1: Thank you, Francis. The uh, wonderful poet Judith Adams up on Whitby, uh, writes, you too have thought about what it would be like to die uh, alone attached to a breathing machine that is not the oxygen of your blood, wiring zigzagging around the bed those around with only eyes to comfort no candles no priest with holy oil no family assembled nor amazing grace i refuse to go into the stars on a machine i want the fairy with prayer flags in the dark the sweet and gentle words that cross with me in the wind toward the country of the gods um Hmm. i want to give our panelists um, an opportunity for just some Brief words, and I'll start with Lady Bird. Uh, Lady Bird, as you've heard all of this, any final brief reflections?
3: Oh, just that uh, our beings are just so precious, and this this desire to to be of service, to be alive, to experience uh, life on the planet is just. I'm feeling the the awe of being human and the complexity of it, and that reminder from Francis of just being gentle, you know, to ourselves during this time that we don't have to figure it out. Um, You know, like that poem said, this isn't a time to like fix your marriage and lose all the weight that you thought you could lose. Just, Mm. um, we're in the soup together and I'm really grateful.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Lady Bird. Janie, any final thoughts?
5: I'm just so grateful to have been part of this conversation. And um, I suppose I'm left with the sense of uh, what's different is that we have a shared vulnerability. So there's not one in the service, you know, the server, the caregiver, we're all vulnerable. And I think that opens us to, you know, really deep possibilities of how we are going to move forward through this crisis because we're not, there's not one expert, we're all human in this and we're sharing a broken-heartedness and thanks to you, Francis, for just bringing us into this realm of grief. Um, and I think through that heartbreak comes you know this, this immense um, ability to connect and to love and to you know share what is human in this, you know to be our best selves, even when we're falling apart, even when we're panicked and terrified, we can still, you know be our our best selves in that um it's not separate right so i i just uh honor this shared vulnerability that we are living and that you know can bring us deeper into you know what's really true about this life so thanks for this opportunity
1: thank you diana last reflections
4: francis just talked about grief has always been held communally and it it has It has been the way that we have learned to express it. And so I would just like to say that those of us that have done healing circles work and circles work are feeling that, that our response to this can be to open those circles as wide as we can. So I encourage you to come to me and, offer whatever circles you might have to come to the Healing Circles global site as we continue to grow it. We feel that this time to support each other is golden and we hope francis that at the end there will be wisdom but we know along the way there is a current of emotion that needs holding and that's what we are trying to do to the degree that we all can respond with the courage that francis talked about
1: Mm. thank you diana and i just want to say this is the first of our friday morning conversations i asked francis as a beloved friend and colleague in the work if he would do it with me and he was kind enough to say yes i cannot commend his work uh, too much to you it's extraordinary and it's been a great resource for so many of us um, we uh, uh, do this on uh, a very uh, deeply limited budget and uh, we welcome your donations some of you have been kind enough to donate and Uh, Kira Epstein, uh, I believe, is going to put the donation site up on the, there it is. Look, uh, the donation thing just went up on how you can donate. Um, Also, uh, that will support not only our podcasts like this, but our Healing Circles podcast. So uh, we're needing to take a lot of our work at Commonweal online, and that requires a whole new manifestation. Um, uh, I want to uh, again um, say to Francis, or Francis. In fact, I was going to ask you, are you going to try to take your grief circles online in some way? Have you thought about that?
2: I am thinking seriously about how to do that, yeah, because the work is so intimate and so physical. Yeah, when we're grieving together, we're side by side, there's a lot of body fluid, <laughs> it's just, right? You know, it's uh. It's like the I'm cancer
1: tru- help program. Yeah,
2: yeah, but there's, you know, I'm sure we can do something.
1: Yeah, I'm and, and we're wrestling the with the question out. of whether we can bring the cancer help program online, which is, you know, deeply intimate experience. Exactly. And and the truth of the matter is, you can't really bring your grief circles online. We can't really bring the cancer help, but we can do something.
2: Exactly. And yeah,
1: the yeah, world so you, calls you
2: know,
1: out uh, for that, as witness the two hundred and 30 or 240 beloved souls who've stayed with us all the way to the end of this right. conversation. So uh, I just want to thank uh, some of the invisible people here uh, Nancy Hep, Sophie Brinker, uh, Ken Adams, uh, the whole uh, crew of P- Kira Epstein, the whole, uh, uh, who's the coordinator of the new school, all the people who have worked hard to make this first. Uh, 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 podcast of our Friday morning series possible. If you go to dot uh, that's for the new school, TNS.commonweal.org, uh, you will find um, uh, hundreds of previous uh, conversations, podcasts, and videos, uh, many of the same depth as this one. Um, and you will find as soon as we get it up, as soon as Ken completes it, you'll find this one at that site as well. So, tns.commonweal.org, or if you forget that, just the new school at Commonweal will get you there. So, Francis, beloved friend, thank you deeply for doing this with us. Uh, Ladybird, Janie Brown, and Diana Lindsay, Ladybird Morgan, Janie Brown, Diana Lindsay, thank you three of you. And uh, I wish we could have gotten to all the questions and the amazing comments, uh, but we will capture them and we will put them up so that you can find them. Because as someone said, there's a lot of gold in the chat and there's a great deal of gold in the chat. So Mm -hmm. bless you all and uh, take good care. Bye to all.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Francis Weller and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.